Good morning. Welcome to Summit Church. I'm Pastor Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Summit. I'm really rejoicing today over a great week of kids camp and, and just celebrating what God did all week. Oh, if you think about Wednesday, last Wednesday, at least 15 kids made first-time decisions for Jesus Christ. That same day, at least 12 kids made recommitments to our, our Lord. Just absolutely amazing. That's right. Go ahead and give glory to God. Friday night, there were some 200 people here for family night, which was the closing out of the opportunity. And there are families here today as a result of that. I'm amazed. I'm especially grateful for Anita Schatz. We are blessed with a wonderful children's director. Thank you, Anita. I'm amazed at at least two businesses that right here at the heart of our busy season were willing to allow employees to come and be a part of Kids Camp. And I'm amazed that other individuals were willing to give up wages last week to be a part of this significant event. But one of the things that blessed me the most, seeing the face of Dan Clausen, who is responsible for a setup and teardown each week. Here we are, a mobile church, and, and Dan every week makes sure that that happens. But to see him blessed, so blessed, because of so many volunteers that showed up to help uh, last Monday. All glory to God. That's right. You can give praise to God. Today we start a new series, War Room. There are three parts to the series. Uh, as we are this morning, we're talking about prayer. This is a big part of War Room. Uh, and we'll be doing a five-week series on prayer. Tonight, there's an opportunity to come to the church office and watch the movie War Room. And then all through the week, we're offering life groups, opportunities for you to come together with others and discuss the film and the power of prayer. War Room. It's a compelling story that forces us to consider the power and the significance of prayer. The Bible tells us that though we tend to think that our struggles are matters of flesh and blood, that's simply not the case. Many of our struggles are rooted in a much larger battle that's taking place in the spiritual realm. The Bible is clear. It's against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Prayer is the best place where we can take our stand against evil. You know, we are here like occupying forces, only establishing the terms of peace that Jesus won on the cross. A prayer room or war room in this case, is a designated place or area where we can get along with God and fight on behalf of ourselves and others. If we will simply believe prayer has amazing effects on marriages, parenting, careers, friendships, seeing people who are far from God coming home to God, seeing people with addictions and abusive behaviors delivered, seeing people healed, and we could go on and on as far as your imagination can carry you. One of my earliest recollections of answered prayer goes back to when I was a new believer. A dear young couple in our church, Mike and Lupe Ronquillo, had found out they were pregnant with their fourth child. But there were complications going on with the pregnancy. Tests showed that Lupe had a very dangerous form of cervical cancer, the doctors recommended, they, in fact, they urged that they abort the child immediately in order to have the necessary surgery, or they would be risking the death of Lupe, the child, uh, or both. 
But Mike and Lupe had strong faith. They trusted God. They shared a biblical conviction that life begins at conception. They valued the child. They had been praying for the child. So they had faith and belief that whether it meant life or death, God wanted them to trust him and to go forward with the pregnancy. It was a desperate situation. It called, called for desperate action. I had never witnessed a group of people praying so earnestly about anything in all my life. For nine months, that couple, along with many in the church, prayed asking God for a miracle. And say what you want to about this, but I believe that's what we got. A miracle. Both Lupe and the child did fine the duration of the pregnancy. After she gave birth, she had the recommended surgery. Today, that child is a 36-year-old young man, and Lupe and Mike are well into their 60s, and grandparents who are still loving and serving the Lord together. Yeah, that's right. If you want to give glory to God, go ahead. That was a good introduction for me on the power of prayer as a young believer. It solidified a resolve in me that God really does answer prayer. We were desperate together, we called out to God together, and we celebrated a miracle together. But you know what the greatest news of all is? There were actually people who came to faith when they witnessed the faith of Mike and Lupe Ronquillo. But I hope you caught one phrase in their story. Hear it loud and clear. We were desperate together. Prayer, at its best, comes in times of desperation. Let's hear that again. Prayer at its best comes in times of desperation. You won't find an atheist on an airplane that's about to crash. <laughs> a sign in a high school restroom read, Notice, in the event of an atomic attack, the federal ruling against prayer in public schools will be temporarily suspended. Three pastors were discussing prayer in general, and specifically about the most effective posture of prayer. As they were talking, a telephone repairman was within earshot. One minister was talking about how you hold your hands and how important that is during prayer times. But another said, no, it's all about kneeling. The third said they were both wrong. The most effective position for prayer is lying face down on the ground. The lineman had to interject his thoughts. He could hold his tongue no longer, and he said, Gentlemen, the most powerful prayer I ever prayed was dangling by my heels from a power pole 40 feet in the air. <laughs> prayer, at its best, comes in times of desperation. But what if we're desperate and we don't even realize it? If we realized how desperately we need prayer, wouldn't prayer meetings be packed with people? I propose to you that we live in desperate times and we may not even realize it. Consider this, God has called us to leave a great inheritance to our children. But what are we leaving them? An inheritance of moral de decay, a national debt that's unprecedented, and a mockery of the very faith that is the foundation upon which this nation is built? See, I'm concerned that, that too many in the church seem to think that if we could just get the right leaders in public office, we'd be okay. Wrong. 
the leaders we have in public office are merely a reflection of the hearts of the people who elected them. So what do we do with that? We say, well, if only we could have a, a revival, then we'd be okay. Wrong. The lack of revival is a reflection of the state of the church. It's interesting, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives seven letters to seven churches. It, it might be our tendency to read these and, and think, wow, that must have been a really great church, or that must have been a really terrible church. But that's not why he gave these to us. He gave them to us as a measuring tool. Here's where you get it right. Here's some hazards to avoid. Here's where you need to adjust. In Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, he's talking to the church of Laodicea, and we could well say he's talking to the church of America, or, or even to, to us as some church, or even to us as individuals. Listen to what he says. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now consider the word desperate with what we're about to read. He goes on and says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, what's the problem with the church of Laodicea? An initial look might cause us to say, well, the problem's lukewarmness. But look again. Lukewarmness isn't the problem. Lukewarmness is merely a symptom of something deeper going on. Remember the word? Desperate. They were desperate. The problem being addressed here is people have forgotten how desperately they needed help. Now, contextually, this gets very interesting. There's a number of people pieces here. Around 60 AD, Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. So that's about 30 years prior to this, this vision. Rome offered them assistance to build, but the Laodiceans rejected it. They, had, they were a large banking center. They had a lot of gold. They were famous for clothing made of, of black wool. They had a great medical school that specialized in isolve made from the mineral water that uh, flowed through the, the city. See, they didn't need help from anybody, and pride kept them from receiving it. Jesus is playing on this, and it describes us. We are the richest people in the world. Even the poorest among us is still among the top 5% wealthiest in the world. We've got it made. Besides, if something should go wrong, no worries. We've got Social Security. We've got welfare. We've got unemployment insurance. I feel better. How about you? <laughs> Uncle Sam will take care of you. We don't need help from anybody, let alone God. But the text forces us to look inward toward our souls and upward toward the things of God. We may just be wretched, deeply afflicted. We may just be pitied, to be pitied and poor and blind to what matters and naked, meaning we're vulnerable, we're exposed. So now he begins to move us toward some solutions to the problem. 
he uses the three commodities we've already addressed. The three commodities of Laodicea to do it. Watch this, starting in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined from fire so you can become rich. Not your big banking centers, but riches of the eternal kingdom. And he says, in white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Not your black wool for which you're so famous, but a robe of righteousness that is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and solve to put on your eyes so you, so you can see. This is about um, the Holy Spirit. Not, not about the mineral water of Laodicea, but about the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to the truths of God. And then he says, buy these things from me. Well, how much does God charge for, for all of these blessings? Absolutely nothing. It's a free gift for those who will entrust their lives to him. In fact, I can't think of a place that says it better, although there are many, than Isaiah 55, starting with verse 1. Listen to God speaking. He says, Come, all you who are thirsty. In other words, those who finally realize just how desperate you are. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest fare. So the result of Laodicea's arrogance, you know, we're not desperate, we don't need anything from anybody, is this lukewarmness. So here's where the whole context of this gets very interesting. All right, now I brought a map. Look at this map. Notice Laodicea there. It's located on the, in, the, in the Lycos River Valley, which today is southwest Turkey. One of the keys to understanding what Jesus is saying here has to do with understanding the water situation there. About 12 miles to the east and upstream of Laodicea, notice the city of Colossae. This, this city was well known for its refreshing cold waters produced by rain and, and melting snow and ice that came down from Mount Cadmus. About seven miles to the north and upstream, notice the city of Heropolis. It was well known for its hot baths and hot springs, much like we enjoy in Colorado. Uh, many visitors and dignitaries would go to Colossae to enjoy cool, refreshing streams, or to Heropolis where they could enjoy hot, healing baths. But there in between Colossae and Heropolis and downstream sat Laodicea, where the streams of cold water from the west and hot water from the north mixed. The mixing of these mineral-rich hot waters with cold water created, you guessed it, lukewarm water. It tasted horrible. It literally would make people sick so they would spit it out of their mouths. It was a constant source of irritation. It's interesting also to note that because of advances in the Roman Empire, this is one of the first areas where plumbing was used to distribute water throughout the city. But the blending of these two water sources had such a high mineral content that it was constantly corroding and clogging the pipes. Notice this image of, uh, of an archaeological dig that exposed the clogging of these pipes. So it's to this end of bitter, lukewarm, harsh water that Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. <laughs> I used to read this and think, you know, God wants me to make a choice. I need to either be totally on fire and passionate about him, hot, or live like the devil, cold. God has a particular distaste for anyone who tries to walk a fence, lukewarmness. But what if what Jesus is saying is greatly influenced by the context of Laodicea? In that case, he's saying, get this, we need a faith that has a positive effect on culture. You can imagine him standing there in Laodicea, pointing to these two cities and saying, either be hot and healing like the waters of Heropolis, or be cool and refreshing like the waters of Colossae, but don't try to be at all. If you try to be at all, you'll only end up making a bunch of people sick and clogging up the works. So, a moment ago, we said the problem isn't lukewarmness, that's a symptom. The problem was a lack of realizing how desperate they were. It's interesting, too. Archaeologists have made a more recent discovery. They found the synagogue of Laodicea and discovered that its front door, and by the way, let me just add here before I get there, that uh, it was also the meeting place for the Christians in Laodicea. They had shared space, just like we do. But the front door opened directly into the main market square of Laodicea. This forces an important question as to who's influencing who. Was the culture influencing the church, or was the church influencing the culture? Lukewarmness suggests that the culture was having too much influence on the church. The church was trying to be everything to everybody, make everybody happy, and therefore it was rendered irrelevant and unnecessary. And we need to think about this because right now in America, the culture is spitting out the church. They don't need us. We don't taste very good to them. So now we get the heart of the solution. This takes us to chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus said, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You know, God's rebuke and discipline is never meant to be harsh. It's only meant out of love so that God can bless us. He says to us, so be earnest and repent. Turn from doing life your own way, your own independence. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The solution to pride begins with repentance, realizing we can't do it on our own. We desperately need him then inviting him to come into the center of your life to take the position that's rightfully his, but somehow, either through personal neglect or rebellion, it's been given to something less. So, some lessons we can learn from Laodicea. Laodicea isn't, isn't about watering down messages from the pulpit as much as about churches failing to bring the healing and refreshing of God to the nations of the world. Secondly, it's not about 
accepting or integrating cultural styles into the church or some art form into the church. It's about having nothing to offer the culture. It's not so much about doctrinal purity or denominational distinctive as it's about the glory of God. It's not about the circus of the church. It's about a church that lives out its beliefs in the circus of the world. I think one of the most beautiful examples of that recently is Chick-fil-A. You know, they've been controversial in society, but God continues to prosper them. And there, during the Orlando shootings, what are they doing? They're giving out free food in the blood banks. Healing, right? Refreshing. So there's two questions each of us must ask as we bring this to a cold close. Number one, has God provided so beautifully for us that we have forgotten how desperately we need Him? See, it's in that case that we cease to be useful, neither hot nor cold. And it's measurable by our urgency in prayer. Secondly, he's knocking. Will we recognize we've been doing our own thing and invite him to come into the place that's rightfully his? But realize he's a gentleman and he will never force his way. Would you please pray this prayer with me? Father, what is it that you're wanting me to hear from this message today? Now, will you say yes to God?